My name is Erin Kenny. I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking all about inflammation, and inflammation is so interconnected into so many different disease states and ailments that people struggle with on a daily basis. Therefore, this episode got me really excited because I thought about how many people could really benefit from it. A lot of my solo episodes might just be applicable for someone with gastritis or somebody with um, you know, certain conditions like SIBO, but this episode is for everybody. Um, inflammation is the root cause of so many different chronic diseases, and therefore we should all be taking these steps that I'm going to give you that are practical nutrition, dietary, lifestyle tips to reduce inflammation in our bodies. So just to give you an idea of some of the conditions that are linked to chronic inflammation, and this is based on the research, include things like cardiovascular disease, because chronic inflammation can actually damage our blood vessels, causing them to narrow or thicken. Uh, Cancer, chronic inflammation can damage the DNA in our healthy cells, causing them to mutate into abnormal cancer cells. Type 2 diabetes, Chronic inflammation contributes to insulin resistance, which is a hallmark symptom of type 2 diabetes. And this persistent inflammation that a person may have disrupts this normal insulin signaling that should not be there in a healthy individual. Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease in which the immune system mistakenly attacks the body's healthy joint tissues. And research shows that this develops after years of systemic widespread inflammation. Asthma, obesity, usually related to dietary and lifestyle factors, endometriosis, chronic inflammation in the uterus or pelvic area can cause endometrial tissue to grow outside of the uterus or within the uterine muscle, causing pelvic pain, really heavy, painful periods, and just really poor quality of life for those individuals. And then depression. There are actually a lot of neurological diseases that have been associated with the dysfunction in the gut, which about 50% of the body's immune system uh, cells are housed in the intestines. And so the different conditions that are linked to gut imbalance and therefore neurological diseases related to inflammation, the list is autism, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, migraine headaches, cerebral ataxia, and specific seizure disorders. To be honest, a big motivator for me when I made a large dietary shift, yes, was prompted by my long history of digestive issues, but it was also the mental health aspect. I could feel that there was a lot of inflammation going on in my body, and I could feel it impacting multiple systems. But my mental health, given the fact that My dad had both schizophrenia and bipolar. There's a lot of mental health diagnoses in my family. 
it was something that really motivated me to start taking care of, especially my gut, knowing how much of the immune system is there, but also really prioritizing inflammation all the time when I focus on diet and lifestyle. So inflammation, it can be local or it can be systemic. Systemic meaning whole body. It can be acute, short-term, or it can be chronic, long-term. Inflammation is a natural, healthy reaction of our immune system. We say thank you when it's fighting off a viral infection or bacteria. You know, having a fever is a, actually a great thing. That's your body using inflammation to fight whatever it is that your body is trying to get rid of. So it might be fighting infection. It might be flight or fright scenarios where our body is, you know, we have some sort of blunt injury. But generally speaking, our immune system is protecting us. What it does is it actually secretes these different pro-inflammatory molecules, things like adipokines and cytokines, which are these molecules that help cell-to-cell -cell communication and stimulate the movement of cells towards that area in the body that needs help, whether it's from infection or injury. And so again, thank you body for being amazing and doing what you should be doing. Now, a healthy body will be able to make the distinction between self and non-self. So the body says, we recognize that this is your thyroid. We don't want to attack your thyroid. We want to attack the bacteria or whatever else it is that is the infection or uh, invader to the body. In a healthy body, that's what happens. When we have something like autoimmune disease, this is when a person's immune system, it mistakenly attacks their own body. And there's about 80 different autoimmune disorders ranging in severity. But again, this is the body under attack to a certain degree. And prolonged inflammation is kind of like the unlock key to autoimmune disease. When, when inflammation goes on long enough, that chronic inflammation is when we start to see autoimmune disease develop. There are certain biomarkers that we can assess in the blood to see if there has been prolonged inflammation or even short-term acute inflammation. So some of these tests we might be looking at eosinophils, which might be elevated due to allergies, uh, parasites, autoimmune, neoplasms, ferritin, which is our storage form of iron. We might see an acute response to inflammation, um, and we can see alterations in ferritin and total iron itself. Fibrinogen basically tells us um, about inflammation related to liver disease. For things like celiac disease, autoimmune disease, we might be looking in the blood for IgA or IgA-specific. IgE, we're looking at elevated levels related to maybe certain allergies or parasitic infections. And then IgG is typically elevated with delayed sensitivities or chronic infections. So those are some that your doctor also might be running. Um, interleukin-1, interleukin-8, again, these are inflammatory cytokines that may be released in response to an antigen. We also might look at liver enzymes if there is inflammation in the liver. Uh, the liver enzymes ALT and AST, these are enzymes that are commonly done in a primary care setting. 
They can be elevated for many different reasons, taking too many dietary supplements, taking NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, drinking alcohol. But there are certain cases where the liver is inflamed, whether it's a viral infection or poor diet, excess adipose tissue, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And so those liver enzymes might be elevated. When it comes to assessing prolonged inflammation related to cancer, we might be looking at things like white blood cell count, which can be low if you have cancer, if you're in radiation, or if you have some sort of severe infection. But it might be high if you are anemic, you have some sort of bacterial infection, or you're smoking cigarettes. Those are just a few reasons. Uh, there's other markers that we can also assess, things like VEGF related to cancer, and then we move into inflammation in the gut. So for inflammation in the gut, we're looking at stool specimen biomarkers. Calprotectin is the one that we use in our practice. The gold standard marker for inflammatory bowel disease is calprotectin. Uh, lactoferrin tells us about intestinal inflammation. Uh, pancreatic elastase, a very common that I see exocrine pancreatic insufficiency in my practice. So we're looking at elastase levels, which we do not want to be below 200 micrograms. The most common one that is tested in a blood test is known as C-reactive protein. And this one is highly sensitive, which is why it's the most common. And we will be looking at this CRP, C-reactive protein, related to chronic systemic inflammation or short-term inflammation. And this could be due to a bacterial infection. I saw a client this week who did his blood test with me literally a day after he was starting to feel better from the flu and this marker was very high. This can also be very high if you just did a really hard workout. Um, so it can be indicative of chronic inflammation, but there's other factors just like all the other ones that can play a role. But the most common ones that I will typically look at are C-reactive protein. I like to see liver enzymes. And if there's GI issues present, then we're always going to want to see what's going on with calprotectin. And that's when we use the stool test from our practice. So just like anything with nutrition and health, there's always a spectrum, right? It's, it's kind of the sense of a bucket. And I've talked about this when I talk about stress, right? You have a, a bucket and you want to keep that bucket as empty as possible in order to keep optimal health. So for example, when we're talking about immune function or inflammatory load, there are many different things that contribute to this. Infections, things like Epstein-Barr virus, gut infections, viral infections, trauma, whether it's physical trauma, even being a high-intensity CrossFit athlete, not taking enough rest, it could be emotional trauma. Certain antigens are a source of inflammation as well. So thinking about things like household materials, inhaling toxic candles, cosmetics, furniture, you know, allergies, sensitivities, these are all what we would put under the category of antigens. Uh, stress and toxins, so this could also include skincare products, inhalants, things like that, that we're consuming or using or exposed to on a daily basis. I work with a lot of patients who um, work in a profession where they are around a lot of these toxins and, you know, they can't change their job. So we're trying to lessen the load in other areas. 
Um, so stress and toxins, lack of sleep. We have a lot of really good research on sleep deprivation in controlled experimental trials that really shows us that sleep loss has a significant impact on inflammation. And there's many different mechanisms as to how this can happen. When we sleep, it's quite fascinating. I think I might have listened to this in a Huberman podcast at one point, or the, the Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker book, which I highly recommend to every human being. But during sleep, our immune system actually releases these cytokines, those proteins that I referred to. And some of these actually help promote sleep, but some of these are, are kind of what are clearing out debris from the day. They're helping to fight any infections or, or inflammation that you have when you're sleeping. And so if you're not getting adequate sleep, you can think of a cleaner coming into your house to do their job and then leaving halfway through. And that's going to impact so many different things on top of the fact that lack of sleep influences our insulin signaling in the body. So how well we're responding to certain carbohydrates, we typically don't make as great dietary choices. So sleep is very important. And then lifestyle, poor lifestyle habits and, and dietary habits. So these are all things that can contribute to our total inflammatory load. So infection, trauma, antigens, stress, toxins, daily toxins, lack of sleep, lifestyle habits. So if we can put efforts into each of these areas, we're doing a pretty darn good job. So let's kick off with the microbiome. So after the Human Genome Project was launched, studies for genomic identification of certain microorganisms associated with healthy individuals versus diseased humans was available to the lay public, which was really exciting. And what they found was that this delicate microbiome becomes a large factor in promoting prolonged inflammation because of the fact that it affects the way that the food we eat is utilized. What they found was that low diversity was a big issue in terms of chronic inflammation. And we know that a big contributor to that is chronic antibiotic use, not eating enough fiber, polyphenol-rich foods, fermented foods. They also found that individuals with overgrowth, certain harmful bacteria, so we know there's lots of different bacteria that under, under the stool test that we use, we call them commensal bacteria. And these commensal overgrowth bacteria, which might also include things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, can also create, they can literally secrete inflammatory molecules that create chronic inflammation in the gut. So if you have chronic inflammation, if you have autoimmune disease, you should absolutely be doing a stool test. We use the GI map. We're going to look at calprotectin. We're going to look at pancreatic elastase. And we're also going to be assessing the overgrowth bacteria that could be in the gut. I will say it 700 times, your digestive tract contains 70% of your immune system. So if we didn't kick off this conversation as prioritizing gut health for inflammation and autoimmune disease, we would be doing a disservice. So let's dive in to the dietary conversation when it comes to inflammation. A big conversation right now on social media is about inflammatory oils. And this is a really important conversation to have. I think there is a lot of misinformation out there. And then I also think there's a lot of really great discussion going on about 
evidence-based tools that we can use, which is what I'm going to be sharing today. So there are two different types of fats. There's omega-6s and omega-3s. I talked about this in my very early on fats and oils episode, if you want to revisit that. But the omega-3 fats are ones in which we do not get much of in our diet. They are essential. Your body cannot make them, and we need to use them to fight inflammation in the body. Omega-6 fats, omega-6 linoleic acid, gets a bad reputation, and that's because people are taking omega-6 fats and just grouping them all into the category of bad fats. But the reality of it is omega-6s actually play a very important role in fighting inflammation in the body. So we shouldn't completely cut out omega-6 fats. And to give you an idea of which falls under each of these categories, omega-3s are going to be things like high-fat fish, that acronym of SMASH, sardines, mackerel, herring, anchovies, salmon. These are all great sources of omega-3s, as well as chia seeds, flax seeds, and walnuts. In terms of what is classified under omega-6 fats, we have very commonly consumed foods, things like sunflower, safflower, soy, sesame, and corn oils, avocados, tofu, peanut butter, eggs, sunflower seeds. These are all sources of omega-6 fats. Now, the oils that I listed are what you're predominantly eating if you're eating out at restaurants, if you're eating a lot of packaged foods, if you're eating anything that comes from a box, essentially. And so it's not that the omega-6 fats are bad. It's that the sources of the omega-6 matters. If we're doing fried peanut oil or fried soybean oil all the time, eating it out at a restaurant, we're not getting enough omega-3s in the diet. This balance between these two eicosanoid pathways, these omega and omega-6s, creates more inflammation in response to our metabolic environment. So it's really important that we focus on getting more omega-3s and more high-quality omega-6s. So high-quality omega-6s meaning you know, they haven't been heated at very high temperatures multiple times. They're not accompanied by highly processed and fried foods. Because I'm sure a lot of you already know that those foods shouldn't make up the majority of the diet. Omega-9 fats can be incredibly beneficial for inflammation found in olives, olive oil, sesame seeds, macadamia nuts, pine nuts, avocados, almonds, almond butter, cashews, also found in peanuts. So we like the omega-9 fatty acids. They're not often talked about, but I like to rotate these in Things like the you know, tahini, you're going to find that in hummus. I love using pine nuts for a pesto and avocados. I actually add them to my smoothie. Peanuts are something that I don't typically do much of anymore. I used to be addicted to peanut butter, but I don't feel great when I consume peanuts. And they're in the legume family, which is not technically a nut family. It's in the same family as beans. But I hear from a lot of clients those who struggle with reflux or bloating or gas, that for some reason, peanuts aren't always the easiest to digest. So if you eat a ton of peanut butter, you might want to just see if reducing the portion size or if replacing it with another, something like a sunflower seed butter or an almond butter makes your gut feel a little bit better. Just some anecdotal reports from a lot of my clients. 
Foods that we definitely want to avoid are those that are very high in damaged fats and oils. And so damaged fats and oils, meaning they've been sitting on the shelf for a while, they've been exposed to lots of heat, um, they have been basically chemically altered, like a trans fat. And these damaged fats and oils promote stress to our cells and our tissues. That is well documented in the literature. So things like acrylamides, acrylamides are definitely harmful in the sense of inflammation. High doses can cause nerve damage and disorders of the nervous system. So this is basically thinking of things like potato chips and french fries. It's when carbohydrates are heated at very high temperatures. So you want to just minimize your exposure to those types of foods. Trans fats are going to be found in things like hydrogenated uh, oil-containing peanut butter, deep-fried foods, pastries, and again, I'm a big donut fan. <laughs> we had donuts at our wedding, so it's not that you can never have these foods. It's just about not making them the majority of your diet. The most common source of trans fats is peanut butter, uh, specifically, I think, the Jif brand. And they are we're basically phasing trans fats out because the research is so robust that even our food regulatory systems are now being forced to make those adjustments. So deep fried foods, uh, lots of corn, sunflower, canola oil, knowing that a lot of those, just the way that they're processed and the fact that a lot of those are used for frying can make them more inflammatory. And then roasted nuts and seeds. I typically try to buy nuts and seeds that are raw and then roast them on my own just because if they're sitting on the shelf for a really long time, already being exposed to light and air, then they can go rancid. And you can typically taste this. I've seen this a lot with like different packaged nuts and seeds. I've even seen people take a handful and be like, does that taste kind of weird to you? You know, you can typically taste when oils have, have gone rancid. And then the last type of fat is saturated fats. And these should ideally be about 10% of our daily calories. So they're not going to make up the majority of the types of fats in our diet, but they can be really beneficial for many different things, including coconut oil, organic butter, ghee, which is clarified butter, which doesn't contain lactose. It's a great choice for people that are lactose intolerant, used in a lot of like Ayurvedic recipes that I love. Uh, dairy, raw, organic dairy, meat, grass-fed, wild game, poultry, eggs, these can all contain saturated fats. And we like these. They're short-chain or medium-chain triglycerides, and there's a lot of great properties to these different types of fats. We just don't want to consume too many of them. There's good research that shows that high levels of saturated fats can be inflammatory to the gut. The second nutrient is vitamin D, and vitamin D actually acts like a hormone in the body. I probably talk about it in almost every episode, I feel like, because it's related to everything, but it has anti-inflammatory and anti-tumor effects and apoptosis support, which is programmed cell death. A lot of people talk about that with things like intermittent fasting. So vitamin D is actually able to contribute to regulating all of the immune responses because of this receptor that we have, this vitamin D receptor in all of the nucleus areas of our cells. 
Vitamin D, it's made in the skin when we're exposed to UVB rays from sunlight or if you're using an artificial rays. And we can also obtain vitamin D through dietary sources, fatty fish, eggs, caviar, organ meats, egg yolks, and mushrooms. Now, there's a lot of attention on vitamin D for good reason, what they're calling a global epidemic of low vitamin D, because many chronic diseases are associated with increased risk of lower vitamin D. Basically, what I consider below 30 NG per ml, you can check your blood work to see what that looks like, and basically recommend that everybody get their vitamin D tested for optimal inflammatory responses in the body. Something that's often not talked about in the conversation of vitamin D is vitamin A. So vitamin A and vitamin D share the same nuclear receptor. It's an RXR receptor for those of you who have taken human nutrition science. And they have this synergistic relationship. And if you think about this in the diet, most of the foods that contain vitamin D also contain vitamin A, known as retinol, and they work together. Very similar is vitamin C and vitamin E. Examples of foods that contain both vitamin D and vitamin A are going to be the liver, uh, egg yolk, milk, which is fortified, cheese, like cheddar cheese, and certain egg substitutes. You also might find vitamin A added to it. So we want to get lots of vitamin A-rich foods in addition to vitamin D-rich foods. There's even some association between vitamin D deficiency and Crohn's disease, uh, and as well as pancreatic uh, disorders. So the, the best form of vitamin A that we typically see in supplementation is cod liver oil. It's a great example also as a, a food supplement that contains vitamin D and vitamin A. Other good sources of vitamin A, basically think of things that are orange, carrots, sweet potatoes, cantaloupe, apricots, peaches, papaya, mango. These are all great sources of vitamin A, carrot being probably one of your top sources. You can also find it in spinach and kale and other fruits and vegetables as well, but incorporate lots of vitamin A rich foods into your diet. And also you can get these tested for your blood work. Next up is magnesium, which when you look at all of the benefits, you start to wonder, is there anything that magnesium doesn't do? And that's because there are more than 300 identified enzyme systems in our metabolism that we need magnesium for. It's also really important in conjunction with calcium because magnesium is the relaxation, the parasympathetic partner, while the calcium is the contracting sympathetic partner, which we, so we need calcium as well. So we need this healthy balance. Magnesium also inhibits inflammation. Low levels of magnesium were associated with higher levels of C-reactive protein, that inflammatory marker, and vice versa. The NHANES data shows us that about 60% of the population does not get enough dietary magnesium. And a lot of this is likely due to low intake of vegetables and whole grains. What we also see in the research is that low dietary magnesium intake is related to inflammatory processes like hypertension and metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, type 2 diabetes, and some cancers. 
from a supplement perspective, some of the best forms of magnesium that I like for inflammation purposes, magnesium glycinate, magnesium L3-inate, these are better absorbed in the body compared to things like magnesium citrate or oxide, which are most commonly used for things like constipation. And the reason that they're used for constipation is because they're poorly absorbed. So there are certain forms that are better absorbed than others and more likely to replete your magnesium stores in the body. The recommended daily allowance for magnesium for people who are ages 19 to 30, which is most of you based on my podcast statistics, the recommended daily value is around 300 to 400 milligrams per day. If you're pregnant, that's about 350 milligrams. If you're lactating, it's about 310 milligrams per day. If you're 31 to 50 years, your needs increase from 400 to 320 milligrams per day between that value. Pregnancy goes up 360 milligrams. And if you're 50 years or older, needs are about exactly the same, 420 to 320 milligrams per day. I usually have clients start at 300 milligrams as a good place to start. Food sources, pumpkin seeds, are going to be some of the biggest bang for your buck. Other things like Brazil nuts, quinoa, mackerel, spinach, almonds, buckwheat, cashews, bulgur, oat bran, any sort of soy tofu-based products, blackstrap molasses, pine nuts, walnuts, any sort of green vegetables like spinach, Wheat bran, bananas, the skin of the potatoes, so have the potato with the skin, chocolate or cacao powder, and then certain herbs and spices, things like seaweeds, coriander, dill, celery, sage, fennel, cumin, tarragon, these all contain some magnesium as well. The next mineral that's incredibly important for fighting inflammation in the body is zinc. Zinc is involved in more than 300 different processes in our body that fight inflammation. Signs of zinc deficiency might include loss of appetite, anorexia nervosa, loss of normal taste sensation, alopecia, hyperkeratinization of skin, dermatitis, and certain reproductive or abnormalities can indicate possible zinc deficiencies. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a super accurate functional way to assess zinc status. However, looking at copper status, the erythrocyte zinc slash copper ratio, as well as hair mineral testing, which I use in my practice, is the best way to assess your mineral status. So zinc is incredibly important for inflammation. It's also really important for inflammation in the gut. Zinc is essential for that gut integrity, preventing leaky gut. Similar to the connection between vitamin A and D and calcium and magnesium, zinc is the nutrient co-partner with copper. So when we're assessing zinc status, we're also looking at copper status. When we're supplementing with zinc, we're also supplementing with copper because high doses of zinc, especially long-term, can create a copper deficiency, which is incredibly important for inflammation. I read an entire book on the importance of copper, and it was just fascinating. One of the best dietary sources of zinc, providing 100% of your daily value in six medium 
of them is oysters. Oysters are an incredible source of zinc. Beef is also a great source of zinc, providing 60% of your daily value in three ounces. Generally, beef is a great source of zinc, all types, whether it's tenderloin, shank, chuck, those are all great sources of zinc in your diet. Baked beans, canned, plain, or vegetarian baked beans can contribute to 19% of your daily value. Chicken legs are also a good source of zinc, pork, yogurt, chickpeas, pecans. These are getting into the like 10, 9, and 8% of your daily value. So not the best sources, but still are going to contribute to your total zinc intake. The next group of vitamins are known as B vitamins, and they include folate, B6, B2, B12, which are involved in methylation. And methylation is directly involved with our immune response and inflammation in the body. Now, the testing that we use for inflammation markers will typically include testing for gene mutations in the MTHFR or COMPT, the COMPT genes. There's two MTHFR genes, one COMPT gene. And if you have issues genetically with methylation, which is this process of donating these different factors of vitamins, then you're going to have increased inflammation in the body as well as an improper immune response. And we also see this increasing risk for things like cancer, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's, cognitive dysfunction, mood disorders, as well as cardiovascular disease. So the process of methylation is incredibly important for healthy immune and inflammation response. Some general advice for any sort of supplementation with these is to avoid unmethylated vitamins if you have methylation gene mutations. So for example, rather than synthetic folic acid, we're going to be using a form of folate that is already methylated as well as B12. And this is what's in my prenatal vitamin because I had one of the gene mutations for improper methylation. So I'm very diligent about it. And patients with those mutations typically have to work a little bit harder to improve detoxification and support their bodies from an inflammatory perspective. If you've ever heard the term eat the rainbow, it's because fruits and vegetables contain flavonoids, bioflavonoids, and phytonutrients, which are incredibly beneficial for the messaging that our body gives to our immune system. They provide protection against free radicals and reactive oxygen species, which are what cause inflammation in our bodies. In addition to that, they actually help to modulate our genes by collaborating with the fatty acids and different prostaglandins in each person. If a person isn't getting enough of these antioxidants and flavonoids, then our body cannot protect our cells and tissues, and we see accelerated damage, we see degeneration and depletion of health, we see um, certain cases like increased risk of cancer, and inflammatory bowel disease and autoimmune diseases. The most studied flavonoid, I actually did my thesis on this, is curcumin. Curcumin is a compound found in turmeric, and it is found to be incredibly anti-inflammatory in nature. Now, if you're really looking for the benefits of curcumin, you're going to want to supplement with it 
based on what I've seen in the research, you really can't get the benefits out of just sprinkling a little bit of turmeric into a curry dish. In terms of dosing for curcumin, we're looking at anywhere from 500 to 1500 milligrams of curcumin daily. I will typically have clients start with the lower end of the range and work their way up. There are certain people where curcumin is not a great choice, and I don't have time to go into all of that in detail, but especially women who are trying to become pregnant, curcumin can actually thin the uterine lining, which is why it's so great for patients with endometriosis and different uh, hormonal imbalances. But for generally speaking, pregnant to become pregnant women, avoid curcumin supplementation. And then there are other individuals that I've worked with who have used high-dose curcumin, and it's really negatively impacted their uh, male hormones. So like testosterone, for example, curcumin has a very high affinity for different hormones. And so that actually made a huge difference when we took it out on one of my male patients, we saw his testosterone levels go up a lot more. So things to keep in mind, I typically like to use curcumin short-term kind of in replacement for a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug to manage pain or help us like when we're working on dealing with a root cause of inflammation. Quercetin is a food component of citrus, pulp, apples, onions, and this flavonoid is incredibly anti-inflammatory and works against mast cells. So mast cells are often a complaint with a lot of my clients who have gut overgrowth because they're having excess histamine and detoxification issues, or if you have seasonal allergies, uh, or if you just generally have mast cell activation syndrome, we can see quercetin as being incredibly beneficial. So this is a supplement that I will commonly use in my practice. Other antioxidants that are incredibly important include vitamin C and vitamin E. These are two that also work together, similar to the other co-partners of nutrition that I referenced. Vitamin C-rich foods, bell peppers, kiwis, broccoli, and then vitamin E, wheat germ, sunflower seeds. These nutrients both work together to fight inflammation in the body, but you can't have one without the other. So diversity is really key. Other factors or key members of the antioxidant network are glutathione, lipoic acid, and coenzyme Q. Ways that you can increase your glutathione levels, which is your body's master antioxidant, uh, consuming sulfur-rich foods, so garlic and onion, increasing your vitamin C intake, which we just talked about. Do your little one to two Brazil nuts per day. Selenium-rich foods, also including chicken, help to upregulate glutathione. Uh, whey protein supplementation, supplementation has been shown to increase glutathione levels. Milk thistle, turmeric, and getting enough sleep are 10 ways that you can support your glutathione levels. Moving into lifestyle habits to reduce your inflammatory load, kicking off your shoes at the door might seem silly, but shoes actually bring in a lot of bacteria, viruses, toxins, pesticides, heavy metals. So take your shoes off when you walk into the house. Choosing organic can also help to reduce pesticide exposure, which can impact our hormones and gut health. Choose natural skincare products, so looking at brands like 
doTERRA skincare line, looking at the beauty counter lines, EWG can give you some helpful tools on ingredients and those types of things, but switch to non-toxic skincare. Uh, avoid synthetic air fresheners. These can make your house smell very nice, but they also release chemicals that are endocrine disruptors, which disrupt your hormone balance. Clean household products. So same with your skincare products. Choose non-toxic cleaning products. This includes your dishwasher detergent. Oftentimes you might see like there's a little bit of leftover residue. We're actually getting a lot more of those types of toxins in our diet than we typically think. So switching to non-toxic cleaning products, we use a lot of vinegar in our house, baking soda, and essential oils. I love the brand Branch Basics. They have an entire kit that covers laundry, household cleaning, dishwashing, and it's kind of a one-size-fits-all and their products last a long time because you dilute them. Wash your hands, very simple, but this can be a way to reduce toxin exposure, avoid lots of germs or bacterial or viral infections, avoid excess intake of processed foods. There are a lot of the processed foods out there have things like artificial dyes, additives that have been shown to be inflammatory to our gut microbiome or disruptive to the gut microbiome. So enjoy treats here and there. Don't stress about having processed foods in your house, but they shouldn't make up the majority of your diet. Use an air purifier. We use the Blue Air air purifier, especially with having a dog, all that dander, but it also collects an unimaginable amount of dust. Every time I open up that filter to change it, I'm absolutely disgusted at the things that could have been sitting in our air. So the, the air purifiers do a great job at reducing your toxin exposure. Choose filtered water. We were using the AquaTrue countertop filtration system for a while, but we finally just got the water drop under the sink filter. And it's been such a luxury because the countertop filters you have to keep filling up over and over again. And while it was totally worth it, it's so nice to have an under the, the sink filter now. Other things to consider, heavy metals, so trying to just, you know, think about the foods that you're consuming. If you're eating a lot of protein powders, a lot of cacao powder, high mercury fish like tuna, can we balance that out a little bit with other things that we enjoy? I have to say this over and over again, we do not have to live in a bubble, we do not have to be perfect, but knowing that there's so many different areas that we can reduce our toxin bucket so that it's not overfilling. There's so much that we can do, even if it's simply just removing your shoes from the house, making your house a non-shoe household, or starting to use a little bit more vinegar when you clean. Those small steps can make a difference. So don't be overwhelmed by the amount of information that you see about toxins. Toxins are everywhere. We're never going to fully eliminate our exposure to them. Exercise is a wonderful tool for fighting inflammation. There are certain guidelines on exercise activity, but as a personal trainer, it really needs to be personalized to each person. I work with patients who have post-viral syndrome, who really need to adjust their physical activity levels. I have clients who are training for marathons. 
So we really need to take it on a case-by-case basis and we look at your stress load and see what's appropriate for you and your lifestyle. But physical activity has a wonderful benefit for reducing inflammation, but too much can produce high levels of reactive oxygen species, which is totally normal. It's a normal byproduct of metabolism, but when they're too high chronically, this can actually cause stress and damage to our cells. So we want to have a good balance. We want to have strenuous activity only for those who are properly trained and are fueling properly and are not at high risk for excess inflammation, maybe due to other health conditions. Monitor your stress levels. If you're staring at a screen all day, if you're in a toxic relationship, if you're dealing with trauma, unresolved trauma, these are all things that can contribute to excess inflammation in the body. So if you're doing all these things, you've really reduced your alcohol intake, you're eating a whole food-based diet, you're eating lots of the nutrients that we talked about, and you've made sure that you don't have deficiencies, and you've also really prioritized lifestyle, and you're still feeling the symptoms of high inflammation, which I, I honestly didn't really talk about, but symptoms of inflammation, things like skin rashes, gastrointestinal issues, depression, anxiety. A lot of my patients will say, oh, I feel like just swollen and stiff a lot of the time. There's joint pain, uh, chronic fatigue, those types of things, frequent infections, headaches, swollen lymph nodes. These are all signs of excess inflammation in the body. So if you're experiencing these and you're looking for more help on how to dive deeper, want to look at the gut, you want to look at your mineral status, these are all things that we do at Nutrition Rewired. And I have seen incredible results working with patients in improving their symptoms of inflammation and even putting certain disease states into remission. That is the best part of my job, honestly. So thank you for tuning in. I hope this episode was helpful. If you have any questions, please leave them in the comments. I'm so excited. Our next group coaching program starts next week. We completely filled up sooner than most of the groups. I usually find a lot of people scrambling at the last minute, but I think the new year people were just like ready to commit to choosing a healthy lifestyle. The next round is going to start in March. So if you are interested in joining the wait list, uh, you can go to nutritionrewired.com and put your application in there. So thanks again for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.